This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. By the way, it's Thanksgiving week as we begin on our Monday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about the craziness going on in the world that we live in. All you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send them to us that way. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner. At the top of the screen, you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Monday, we've got our men's and women's uh, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock. You can make it a family affair. Ladies, Paula will be teaching uh, tonight, uh, and uh, you can watch it. If you can't make it here, you can watch it at calvarysa.com. Watch the live stream beginning at 7 o'clock. We'd love to have you. Uh, And then, of course, everybody's getting ready for a big Thanksgiving uh, week, and I'm anxious to get to Thursday. This is my favorite meal of the year, and Paula does such a good job making it. So um, we'll be praying for you guys. you be praying for us. Let's get to the questions while we await your phone calls. The first one comes from Donald, and he wants to know about Deliverance Ministries. Uh, Pastor on our Deliverance Ministries, good. Uh, they're, they're not good. They're not safe, Donald, and that's the, the real problem with them. Um, you know, one of the things, and, and usually these are associated with the faith or prosperity type churches. You know, if you have enough faith, anything's possible. But, but the reality is they have no faith at all. Um, if they had faith, they would understand that we have been delivered once and for all by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How many times do you need to be delivered from something? And the whole premise, Donald, of the deliverance ministries is that Christians can be or are often demon-possessed. And we know that's not true. Greater is he who lives in us than he who is in the world. And um, um, God simply will not share uh, you with that which is evil. Uh, We we certainly, Donald, can be um, harassed by demons. Um, they they do the best they can to throw us off course and, and to keep us from serving God faithfully. Uh, but uh, there, there's just no reason uh, to to be involved in, in a deliverance ministry. Uh, I've seen so much damage, so much damage. Christians, uh, always immature Christians, but nonetheless Christians who are convinced there's a demon in them, and then they go through these deliverances, and then they keep having the same problems. And when I say tragedies, Donald, I have seen uh, everything from suicide to to um, self-destruction. And uh, it's, it, it, it's just a horrible, horrible, pernicious um, false doctrine. So no, deliverance ministries are not good. Christians cannot be possessed by demons. Uh, and when we are harassed or oppressed by demons... Well, that kind of is an indication that we're serving the Lord and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And then, of course, Jesus, um, in the person of the Holy Spirit, promises us deliverance from them. But it's not the cast the demon out deliverance. It's just understanding how to walk in the grace that God has already provided. 
So, Donald, please be very, very careful. Stay away from them. Uh, anybody who needs to be delivered, uh, all they need to remember is that they were delivered one time, one time on a hill called Calvary nearly 2,000 years ago. Thank you for the question, Donald. Let's go to San Antonio and talk with Clara on line one. Clara, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, hi, my name is Clara. Um, I've been listening to you for a while, and I'm really thankful that you are here to answer a lot of our questions, and I'm just really appreciative of you, um, you. and everything that you and Paula do for us. So thank you. Um, so I had a, a question, and also um, I also wanted to see if you had any advice based on what Scripture says and on what God says. Um, so... I have an older brother. He's four years older than me, and I'm 29, and so he's 33. And he's just been struggling um, lately. He's been struggling for a couple of years now, a lot with um, just with uh, you know a lot of drinking, and he's very irresponsible with his finances. Um, my husband and I really like try to love on him. Try, have tried to really um, you know teach him how to like set up a budget and try to read scripture with him and. He has kind of pushed us away. He's a very friendly guy, very charismatic, but just continues to, to push people away whenever, um, you know, we try to talk to him about God. My husband and I um, had our eyes opened by the Lord um, a couple years ago in twin, uh, 2018 in January. And so I, you know, I understand that the Lord really is the one who opens our eyes and he reveals mm-hmm. himself to us. And so I've been praying for my brother for the Lord to reveal himself to him because it just hurts me when I see my brother just kind of like spiral out of control. He has two kids, two filled marriages, and he has mm-hmm. a lot of relationship issues. And so my question is to use like, I don't know what to do in regards to finances. My husband and I um, were helping him uh, with, you know, even like paying his phone. So he was on our phone plan and he was supposed to, you know, pay us like, you know, his cell phone bill and and like a very expensive phone. And he just, he never, ever pays us back. And so, you know, we we tried at first to tell him, hey, you know, you owe us. And so he's always like that. And and it's not just a cell phone, even like with his mortgage payments, he hasn't made them. And I, unfortunately, um, four years ago, I co-signed for um, his house Mm -hmm. when he was married because he and his wife had really bad credit and they have a special needs child. Um, And so I wanted to help them out. And at that time, it was it was I felt at that time what what was best because, you know, they they were trying to get out of uh, living in an apartment complex and they needed a, a home. And so anyways, he's been very irresponsible with making payments and all of that. And it's gone to the point where, like, my husband and I are really, like, needing to pay for his things. And we don't know, like, how to cut him off. Like, even just something basic like a cell phone bill. Um, he has money to go out and to drink a lot. And he drinks and drives. And we've told him not to do that. But he doesn't listen, you know. And it's just, it's really hard to kind of put sense to him. And we don't, I, I feel like it's getting to the point where we feel like we're enabling him, even if it's just like a cell phone bill. And so I, I don't know how to best approach it. I just found out, like his ex-girlfriend called me. She's a super sweet girl. And she just called me and said um, today and was just really upset and said that he like cheated on her multiple times. And in the past seven months, she was really hurt. So her and I just prayed and I told her I was really sorry. I just can't do anything about his behavior. So there's just like a lot of suffering, you know, in the family, like his kids are suffering to see his their daddy like that. We suffer because we see him like that. Um, he just kind of like laughs it off. You know, he continues to drink and spend and he doesn't have a job. He just got hired for another job. And so it's really hard to sometimes cut him off and not loan him money because my mother, you know, kind of guilts us into it and says, well, this is your only brother. You should be helping him. He doesn't have a job. So we're kind of, we don't know really what to do. And we've prayed about it and we feel like the Lord is putting in our heart that we may just need to kind of cut him off. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to kind of bring that up to you and, and see what you think. It just because, I mean, we've been hearing you on the radio for a couple of years and we almost see you almost like, I don't know if to call you like a counselor, but you just kind of, you've guided us through God, you know, with God's word uh, in that aspect. Claire, thank- and so, and we're, we really respect what you have to say. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Thank, thank you for the kind words. And I can hear the broken heart. And, and these kinds of things are always hard. Since you've been listening to me for a couple of years uh, on the radio, uh, you know my heart. Um, when I teach, my heart is out there. So please, as hard as it is going to be to hear what I have to say, uh, please understand that my heart is to win your brother to Christ. And, um, you know, the, the message that I did yesterday here at Calvary Chapel uh, was a message about this very thing. Um, the, the things of the Spirit feel uh, foolish, like foolishness to the natural man or to the unbelieving man uh, because the, the things of God are spiritually discerned. And you can't convince him. You can't change him. Um, um, you've proven that helping him uh, isn't really helping him at all. So this has got to be a move of God's Spirit on your brother's heart. And it's the only way that he's going to change. The, the, the Spirit of God, when he moves upon a man or a woman's heart, that change is permanent. But when we just enable people or when we try to persuade people, the change never lasts. You know, when they're in trouble, they'll come and they'll be uh, seemingly sorry about they're seemingly sorry about things that they've done, um, but but your brother's got a track record, and he's a grown man. Now, here's the hard part. The only thing you can do is to let him know that when he wants Jesus, you and your husband will be there for him. That Jesus is the only answer, but until he wants to talk to you about Jesus, that there's no more help that you can provide him. And don't let your mom guilt you into it. You know, co-signing a house, the Bible is clearly says that, that we're not to not to do that. We're not to put up, Proverbs says we're not to, to put up surety for another. And that means people in the family as well. And, um, you know, we find Christians all the time getting in trouble because people in their families, people they love, are taking advantage of them. And so, Claire, what you really need to do, and this is difficult because it doesn't feel like the loving thing to do. You've just got to understand that what the Bible says is that it is the loving thing to do. You've got to put your brother in a place where he has to deal with Jesus himself. As long as he can keep coming to you or as long as he can keep coming to mom, you said he was charismatic. Charismatic people have a way of getting over. And so he's got to have to get to that point where he has his own wrestling match with Jesus. And until he does that, things are not going to change. And in fact, things are getting worse. Now, because he's drinking... Uh, things could get worse for him very quickly. Things could get worse for his family quickly. Um, you said he has sons, and, and those sons are watching a, a grown man behave in a way that is unbecoming. And um, they're going to follow in his footsteps as long as he's in a position of influence. That's why conversion, that's why transformation is the most important thing. And you and your husband, knowing the right thing, and God's already been speaking to your heart about this, so knowing the right thing to do, this is just one of those things where you're going to have to resolve, I'm not going to help you any longer, so please don't ask. It's that simple. Now, he's going to continue to ask, but every time you're just going to say no, and then don't let the enemy cause you to feel guilty. Don't let him pull uh, a tug on your heartstrings. Just, just say, you may hate me for this, but this is the best thing for you. It's time for you to grow up. And then you and your husband, um, by your witness to him and to his family, at least there will be somebody that they can turn to, someone that they can come running to when life sort of crashes in around them and falls apart. There will be that consistent witness for Christ, and they, they'll, they'll come running to you. So be consistent, say no, be firm in that decision, and all the while, let that breaking heart of yours keep bombarding the throne of God with prayers on your brother's behalf. Likely it will get worse before it gets better. Um, this is a pattern that we've seen uh, over and over and over uh, among unsaved family members, but often they become Christians when there's nowhere else to turn. Clara, uh, it wasn't exactly the same because I wasn't irresponsible in the sense that that I couldn't keep a job or anything like that. But uh, I gambled before I got saved, when Paula was praying for me for 13 years. Uh, and, and gambling was no problem because I, I had tons and tons of money. I was very wealthy, very successful businessman. Um, and, and it wasn't until Paula took her hands off the whole thing and said, God, whatever you have to do to him, take everything away from him, 
It wasn't until she could get to that place in her prayers that, that God was able to move on my heart. I had to lose everything, and that's what I did. And in the process of losing everything, I really found everything. And for the last almost 30 years now, um, um, it's almost like I can't remember the old me. I'm sure Paula remembers the old me. But it, it was like that it happened to somebody else. And that's what we'll be praying for your brother. So, Clara, I hope that makes sense to you. I hope that doesn't break your heart. It's hard, but the best thing that you can do the best thing you can do is just get him in a position where he has no one to turn to except Jesus Christ. And for me, when Paula started praying, Lord, take everything away, um, it was probably three years, maybe four years, before it was all gone. And then when it started to go away, boy, when my life started um, falling apart, it was like an avalanche. It happened so quickly. And yet it was at that bottom place where I found Jesus. So, Clara, I hope that makes sense to you and hope you still like to listen to me. Thank you very much thank for you, the I question. Thank you. I appreciate you. Oh, thank you, Clara. God bless you. We'll be praying for your brother. Keep us posted. Those are heartbreaking situations. And boy, I'll tell you. Here is a question from William. William, I actually like this question. said, how can I determine which promises in the Bible are for me personally? William, it's really easy. This is just a basic hermeneutic. Find out who the Lord is speaking to. For instance, and, and usually this tension comes up between the Old Testament and New Testament. It's because we don't really understand how to study the Old Testament. But here's the basic hermeneutic. Find out to whom God is speaking. And that's to whom the promise applies. So if, if God says to uh, Israel, I know the plans I have for you, and this is, this is one of those big promises, um, um, plans to prosper you, uh, you know, we want to claim that promise. But God didn't make you that promise. Now, in the New Testament, he's made you bunches and bunches of promises that are, are infinitely greater than that. But that promise was written to Israel. It was written at a time when... Israel was being held captive. Um, Jeremiah, who made that prophecy, or who, through whom God made that prophecy, uh, he was in Jerusalem watching, watching the land be ravaged. And in that particular case, uh, William, um, um, God was saying, you know, Jer Jeremiah, things look bad now, but don't worry, my plan is still going to come to fruition. My plans for Israel are this and that. So um, just read to whom the promise is made and, and understand it. Now there's a principle. There's a principle. Another one from, from Second Chronicles. If, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will turn and heal their nation. And we, especially around election time, we Christians are pounding that promise, Lord. But, but that wasn't for us. The principle is if if we individually as Christians, if we collectively as a church will humble, humble ourselves and pray, then we know God will act on our behalf. So it's really important. Well, let me give you a little bit of homework, okay? Um, take your Bible. Just turn to one chapter. Rather than go all over the Bible, and we could do that, there's hundreds of these promises. But go into Romans chapter 8 and... Just highlight in your Bible the promises that are made. And they're made to us. Made to the Christians in Rome, but, but these are living promises and they're made to us. Uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a promise for you. Uh, you're more than conquerors through him who loves us. That's a promise for you. So just highlight those promises. And then take some prayerful time just to sort of meditate on those promises and and uh, it's a good thing for all of us to do, by the way, Thanksgiving week. But just meditate on those promises and let God fill your hearts. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. What a promise that is. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This, just those promises and the many more in Romans chapter 8 is a good place to start. I know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. You're, you're, you're beloved by God, and you're called according to his purpose, so there's a promise that applies to you. 
So I hope that makes sense. It's just a very simple, basic hermeneutic. Good question. Thank you very much. Let's go to shirts and talk with Scott on line one. Scott, thanks for calling. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Good to hear from you. How are you doing? uh, I'm doing well, thank you. Um, Happy Thanksgiving to you and your flock, and uh, I just pray that you all be safe and enjoy this this time, this season. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I've got a question for you today. Um, I'm preparing for a study, um, and uh, it's uh, um, Romans 10, verse 9 is where I'm at. And uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the study guide I have, it talks about the word confess, and it says that it's a public, um, it's a public confession, it's a public event. But I was listening to J. Vernon McGee, and he said, no, that that's not what it means. It's aligning your, your heart up with, or your life up with your, with, with your words or with what you're confessing. Um, I, it, they're kind of contradicting each other, and I was just kind of want, want to get mm-hmm. your thought on that. Um, on the word confess and how that, you know, relates in that in that verse. And I'll listen yeah, to you great. on the air. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. J. Vernon is right. Um, the, the Greek word uh, means to say the same thing as another. That is to agree or to assent. And so when it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you're agreeing to all that name represents. Um, um, repentance. First um, um, John one nine. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just. If you agree with God about your sin, so that's what He's saying. It has nothing to do with with the other um, um, the meaning. This is as clear as it can possibly be. So, if you confess publicly, Romans chapter ten verse nine. This is a a common evangelistic um, um, verse that's used. Um, but but anytime we confess. We're agreeing that Jesus is Lord. I'll give you a simple example. This is the easiest way to always remember this. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, that's what he says. That's simply to agree that he's the Lord. Now, if we agree that he is the Lord, that means he is the boss. He's in charge of us. And we can't say no to the boss. I I, I get tickled. You know, young people these days, they always uh, use the word boss. I, I go to a restaurant where we've been going for many, many years. And uh, when I walk in, a lot of the young men especially say, Hi, boss, because I know them really well and they know who I am. And, and um, you know, if, if we treat Jesus that way, you're the boss. So I'm agreeing that you are the Lord. You died. You didn't stay dead. That validated the fact that you have the authority to forgive sins. So that's the confession, the agreement that you have to make with your mouth. And then in this case, he said, goes one step farther, and shall believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that confession, the agreement in that principle is how we are saved. It's not just saying the words, but it's the words accompanied with a sincere belief in heart that Jesus is the one who he says he is. Well, that, Scott, is is how we're saved. So anytime you see confess, First John 1, 9, or any of the other confession um, um, passages, it's always about agreement. And when we agree with God, um, we're simply lining ourselves up with the heart of God, the will of God, and then those promises uh, are for us as well. So that's what it means in Romans 10. It means that everywhere else, you know, to to confess your sins is to agree, Jesus, those are sins. I'm sorry, I, did, I didn't mess up, uh, I didn't make a mistake, I sinned, and I sinned against God. Uh, David, in his great psalm of repentance and confession in Psalm 51, you know, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. He, he understood who his sin really was directed at. And um, that's that's what Paul means in Romans chapter 10. And that is a principle, Scott, that is consistent throughout our Bible. So um, you, you're in really solid ground. Just teach it that way. It's an agreement. And typically, J. Vernon McGee, McGee is a really good source. He's uh, quite the the uh, intellect. I know he doesn't sound very smart. Um, but, but this is a guy who translated... Uh, the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts uh, and, and into his own Bible. And you'll often hear him, he'll say, you know, well, my Bible says, and when he says that, 
what he's saying is my translation, he's translating it from the original manuscripts or from, from the original languages is a better way to put it. Um, and, and yeah, so he's really solid and he's really, really good on words. One other thing that'll help you, Scott, is if you're doing a Bible study, the best word study uh, resource that I've ever found is, is a series called Robertson's Word Pictures of the New Testament. A.T. Robertson is perhaps the preeminent Greek scholar in the last 200 years. Uh, and um, uh, Robertson's Word Pictures, it is a magnificent resource, and I don't think anybody should teach a New Testament passage without knowing that. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go right back to the phones. Send Marcos to Rick on line one. Rick, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hello. Hi. Yeah, I, I heard... I, I heard Reverend Hagee was in the hospital with COVID, and it just made me think. Of, I mean, all these charismatics, Pentecostals around, and nobody went and laid hands on the man. They, they claim Mark 16 is theirs, but it doesn't work today. It's not a promise to us. We were talking about promises. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Hebrews, Revelation. It's all Israel. Okay, Rick, 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 thanks. We're, we're going to cut you off, Rick. I know where you're no, going. Yeah, okay, cut me You've off. done this before. Cut me off. You've done this before. Yeah. Rick, just so the audience understands, Rick is a hyper-dispensationalist, and he's always going to find a reason to to um, to go off into some tangent, uh, and it's just bad Bible study. He's just it's just dishonest scholarship. So every time Rick comes on, and and, and he uses different names every time, um, we're just going to cut him off. So Rick, don't uh, might as well save yourself the time and the trouble. By the way, he, he did mention uh, John Hagee. Uh, I have not heard anything at all about uh, any updates on uh, Pastor Hagee's health. Uh, I've been praying for him. Um, he did have uh, he did come down with COVID, uh, and I don't know how he is. And certainly to use um, somebody's misfortune with this illness as an opportunity to get on your bandwagon for um, really, really false doctrine is um, is inexcusable. So, Rick, you need to repent and um, and get right with God. By the way, I'm a dispensationalist. So, um, you know, to, to uh, I'm, I'm I'm not suggesting that dispensationalism is at all unhealthy. It's it's really the only real way to understand the Bible. But remember, I say all the time, the balance is always in the middle. The balance is always in the middle. You go to these crazy extremes. And uh, and that's when you get off, and you can see there's very little fruit of the spirit coming from uh, people like this time he called himself Rick, um, because they just don't care about what's really right or wrong. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Dinah. I hope that's right. Dinah um, says I have two questions. First, is it true the rapture could happen right now? And second, why is it that Christians seem so unloving toward one another? Uh, boy, those are two crazy different questions, Diana. The first one is, yes, the rapture can happen in any moment. Um, okay, that few seconds of dead air time was me waiting for the rapture, just in case that it came. But yeah, the rapture can happen in any moment, the return of Jesus for his church. No, not his return to earth, but the return of Jesus for his church where he will call us up and we'll meet him in the air. Uh, 
um, that's the next event on the prophetic calendar. So uh, Dinah could happen at any moment, and that's why we're to redeem the time, making the most of every opportunity. Um, we need to tell people about Jesus because it's come, because he's his, his, uh, his going to call us home to be with him soon. Uh, your second question, why is it that Christians seem so unloving toward one another? It's because they're walking in the flesh rather than in the spirit. You know, Dinah, it's just that simple. You know, the fact that somebody's a Christian doesn't automatically crucify their flesh. Now, positionally it does, but practically that's a decision that we have to make every day. And Christians who are unloving toward one another, are, are it, it's as simple as this. First, they're immature. By the way, that's going to be my study this coming Sunday in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, but um, they're immature. And they're in the flesh. They're, they're carnal Christians. I'm not suggesting they're not believers at all, but they're carnal Christians. And the truth is, when we're not walking in the Spirit, we're going to be unloving toward people. You know, we want to argue. We want our, our uh, to, to debate people. We want to win. We want people to come to our side. I mean, Dinah and I have been talking about this, not for a while, thankfully, but before the election, uh, with the questions we get about uh, about uh, Facebook and, and Christians arguing with one another. Where, where's, where's the love? Well, flesh is going to overwhelm the love that's supposed to come from us, the love that Jesus said has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he's given us. That's Romans 5.5. 5. But if we don't let, by faith, that love come, then we're quenching the Spirit and we're going to walk in the flesh. And I don't care, Dinah, how long you've been a Christian. I've been a Christian now for almost 30 years, and um, honestly, my flesh is just as bad, just as stinky and ugly as it was before I got saved. So that's why I've got to put it to death daily, sometimes hourly. I've got to put it to death. That way I can function, I can operate by the power of the Spirit instead of doing what seems to come natural to my flesh. So, yes, the rapture could happen. And every time we're unloving to somebody, every time we're unforgiving, every time we get angry, every time we gossip or say ugly things about someone, um, we are in the flesh rather than the spirit. Uh, And that's a position that no Christian has to be in. Grayson says, should false teachers be rebuked publicly? Um, yeah, I think they should Grayson, but but it really d- determines or, or depends on what you mean by rebuked. If you mean yelled at or fingers pointed at, no, uh, you know, Paul named names, um, Alexander and Hymenius, um, another one, Simon the Sorcerer. Uh, th- those are um, the people need to be protected from. So yes, false teachers should be named publicly, so that real believers have discernment tools. Should I listen to him or should I listen to to this person? Um, But um, at the same time, remember, we we shouldn't delight in rebuking anybody. God, when you do something wrong, Grayson, he doesn't rebuke you, he corrects you. And, And so that's what we should do with false teachers. We should correct them in love. We should be consistent. We shouldn't stand for false teaching. Uh, and, and if we encounter it, then we, we should find a healthy, well-balanced church. But the truth of the matter is, is there are just some people who will not let the Spirit rule and reign. Thank you um, for the question. Let's go to Jim on line one from San Antonio. Jim, thanks for calling. Thanks, Pastor Ron, for taking my call. Huh? I have a question about the Sermon on the Mount in chapter uh-huh. 5 of Matthew and going all the way through chapter 6 and 7, and also the parallel mm-hmm. passage in Luke 6 that also has a pretty similar in uh, content. Do you believe those are the same sermons? Yeah, um, Actually, no, they're not. One is the Sermon on the Mount. The other is identified as Jesus being on a plane, so we call that the Sermon on the Plain uh, in Luke. Um, but one of the things we need to remember, Jesus, um, you know, he, he was an itinerant preacher. He walked around and traveled around um, to different groups. So he taught the same things multiple times. It wasn't like every time that Jesus 
um, um, opened his mouth. It wasn't something original. Um, so he would tell the same parables, uh, sometimes with slightly different twists on them to make the same points. Um, but they weren't the same messages at all. The location is different. The geographical location is different. Um, but the, the principles, by and large, are the same. So um, Jesus repeated himself. <laughs> you can just tell you, yeah, the pastor's heart. We pastors, we repeat ourselves all the time. But, um, Jim, they're, they're different teachings, different locations, um, but by and large the same parables, or the same principles. Parables, I, I was, that's where the word parable came up. The parables he does the same thing with. So I hope that helps. that all you got, Jim? 30 on that. Yeah, you know, I, I, just a word of encouragement. You remind me kind of Ezra, in Ezra 7.10. It says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord to practice it and to teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel. So you really, you work hard, you know, to rightly divide the word. And, and, to, and he, has, he has more questions people ask us. <laughs> so I appreciate your your study of the word and your uh, seriousness and wanting to to stand before the Lord and accountable is how did you, you know, answer questions. You, you're, you, you love the Lord and you love the word. So I appreciate your being around to have us ask questions on the, on the air. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Jim. God bless you. You know, sometimes I, I wonder, um, I think this is our ninth year. The producer's counting with his fingers. Well, over eight, eight yeah. and a half. Yeah, we're, 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 we've been on the air for over eight and a half years. And, you know, there are times when you wonder, because it's every day, four o'clock, comes at four o'clock. And, and you just wonder, is, is this worthwhile? It costs a lot of money. Is this a worthwhile endeavor? So, Jim, when people like you call in and say those things, it really... Uh, is a source of encouragement, and I thank you very, very much. You just gave me one more thing to be thankful for um, on Thanksgiving. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Thomas, Pastor. On does Acts sixteen teach it? If I believe, my family will be saved, even if they don't believe in Jesus. Thomas, no. You know, one of the things we have to remember about the cultural differences. Way back in the first century, this was in Philippi, and it was the Philippian jailer, um, um, where after the, the earth quaked and Paul and Silas were let loose, uh, they didn't leave, they, they stayed. Well, remember, when they were in stocks, when, when they were being tortured, um, they decided, well, this could be the end, we might as well use this time to sing some love songs to Jesus, and that's what they did, they began singing hymns. And that's when the ground began to shake and they were let loose. Well, their consistent witness to the Philippian jailer and the fact that he was going to have to kill himself because that would have been the penalty of death for him had his prisoners escaped. And then Paul says, no, don't do anything, we're still here. Uh, that witness caused him to believe, this, this is a man who's different than I am. I need his Jesus. And uh, in this particular case, um, Paul told him, you know, you believe you and your family will be saved. That's not a promise that our families don't ever believe. As much as we'd like it to mean that, everybody has to make their own individual choice for Jesus. Everybody has to decide to die to themselves so they can live for Christ. And nobody gets a pass. Um, but in that culture, um, the male determined the religion... That's the word I don't like using, but, but that's the best way to use it. The religion that the family would observe. It was just the way it was. Women and children had no voice in the, in the first century world. And so if the husband came home and said, well, today I'm, I'm a Christian, then everybody was a Christian. And then he would begin taking them. So it wasn't a, um, no, you don't need to be born again. Everybody needs to be born again. And Thomas, this has been misunderstood by a lot of people. The truth of the matter is, is when one Christian gets saved in a, or one person gets saved in a house and becomes a Christian, then what really, really happens is that the witness of that one man or that one woman is used by the Holy Spirit to influence and infect, and I use that in the most positive of ways, uh, to infect the others in the family, and it just becomes natural. And you see whole families come together. You know, one of the great things that we've seen here, Thomas, over our 25 years here at Calvary Chapel. Um, you know, we live in a Catholic city. 60% of the, the people in San Antonio 
identify as Catholic. And we'll see one person, man or woman, it doesn't seem to matter, who gets saved um, out of a Catholic background. And then they'll bring somebody the next week, and then they'll bring three more people the next week, and and five more people the next week. It's just families seem to fall like dominoes, and, and Catholics get saved. And that's the principle that we need to understand. But no, Acts chapter 16 does not mitigate against the need for everybody to believe in Jesus Christ individually. And when I'm praying for my family members who don't believe, I I tell the Lord, I know you won't violate their free will, but God, whatever you have to do to bring them to that moment of decision, Lord, save them, go get them and chase them. And he's faithful to do that. Good question, Thomas. Thank you very, very much. Alex says, Pastor Ron, what would you say? Nope, I got a question there. Got a call. Go that first. Let's go to Brian on line one from San Antonio. Brian, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, hello, Pastor Ron. Thank you for uh, taking my call. My pleasure. Okay, great. Hey, I got a question for you. Um, Isaiah 53 5, talking Mm -hmm. about by his stripes we are healed or by his wounds we are healed. I grew up in a charismatic church where, and I've known a lot of people that that's like guaranteed heal, physical healing. Yes. I don't believe I don't believe that's guaranteed healing. Is that talking more about spiritual healing, or, what, or can I just have your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, um, uh, Brian, this is this is a, a question that we get a lot. Isaiah fifty three five doesn't say anything at all about physical healing. By his stripes we are healed. You got to look at the context. Uh, what did the Messiah... Remember, he's a suffering servant. Those are the suffering servant passages. And it refers only to healed from our separation from God. Uh, Peter mentions it, and Matthew mentions it, uh, and, and both times it's in the context of spiritual healing. It's, it's the, the one fatal disease, the disease called sin, that nobody recovers from apart from Jesus Christ. And so it says, by his wounds or by his stripes we are healed. And it has no connection whatsoever to physical healing or any promises thereof. And it's really important because it is so badly abused uh, in charismatic churches. And again, I, I say that I am a charismatic. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today and we function in those gifts. Uh, but, but you've got to read the Bible for what it says. And so by his wounds, he took the punishment that you deserved. Brian, the punishment that I deserved. And and because he was punished, we don't have to be. That's why when he cried out, Father, in the garden, if, if there's any way this cup can pass, and three times he cried out, three times the Father said no. Because he had to accomplish that on the cross in order to pay the price that satisfies the justice of God. So in the atonement, and that's what Isaiah 53 is really all about, there is no mention at all of physical healing. I hear people say, well, you know, it's not guaranteed. Physical healing is not guaranteed by the atonement, but it's provided for in the atonement. It is not, because it doesn't speak at all about physical healing. Now, if we use our common sense, Brian, we, we, we remember the Apostle Paul. If God was going to guarantee that anybody would be healed, it would be Paul. Three times he pleaded with the Lord to take that thorn in the flesh from him. And he was told three times, my grace is sufficient. In other words, that's Jesus saying no. Uh, we have all kinds of people. Epaphras nearly died because he was ill. Um, but, but, but there's all kinds of people in the Bible who suffered um, great physical maladies, people with exemplary faith, and they weren't healed. The miracles that we hear the charismatic churches demanding well, those miracles didn't happen all the time in the first century church. They happened as signs pointing to validate or to authenticate the message that was being carried by the apostles and by the early church. So, no, um, physical healing is not at all included in the atonement. And even as I say that, one final comment, Brian, God still does heal sometimes. God still does heal sometimes. Uh, we've had people um, healed uh, from, from what we were promised was terminal conditions. 
um, through a lot of medical care and through a lot of healing uh, and praying. Um, we've had a few people uh, over our years healed miraculously, some of them instantly. But, but that happens very, very seldom because we don't need signs pointing to Jesus. We know all about Jesus now. Um, but most of the time, truth is, people don't get healed. It has nothing to do with their faith at all. Certainly it's not because God's promises failed. It's that when they take those suffering servant passages and apply them in a New Testament construct, they're just really getting thrown uh, off course. So, Brian, thank you for the question, and you are right. It's not a guarantee. Um, Alex's question, Alex's question is, what would you say to Christians who do not believe that Genesis 1-11 through is to be understood literally? They spiritualize it, and I think they're destroying Christianity in the process. Uh, Alex, I agree with you completely. Um, there, there are some Christians, uh, new Christians. When I first got saved, I didn't know anything about Genesis 1-11. through I never opened the Bible. So uh, I believe that, that we evolved from lower life forms or there was some big bang that caused everything. That's what I was brainwashed to believe uh, in, in, in our education system. But believe me, I was saved. Now, here's what I would say to you, Alex. The new believer who continues to insist as he grows, um, theoretically, as he grows in the Lord, as his time um, um, being saved increases, but the, the one who continues to hold on to the fact that, no, we, evolution's true, or the, the world, the earth is billions of years old, um, Adam and Eve was not, they were not the first two people on the earth, um, um, then, then those people, I really believe, aren't saved. You know, again, we, we have excuses in ignorance and, and, and lack of exposure. Those are excuses for not believing some of these things when we're first saved. But as we grow, as the Spirit who leads us into all truth comes and takes up residence in us, well, Alex, that's when we begin to grow, when God opens our understanding. And so the Christian, or the professing Christian, stays um, put in, in, well, I just don't believe this or I don't believe that. I'm going to tell you that Genesis 1-11, through 11, if you don't take it literally, then we lose every major doctrine of our New Testament faith. Every major doctrine. Doctrine of original sin doesn't apply. Um, the, the, the atonement, if, if Adam's sin wasn't responsible for us introducing a fallen sin nature to the world, then, then our doctrines just don't matter. Uh, the fairness, the justice of God. So, Alex, I agree with you 100%, and we need Christians who are willing to stand firm in a literal interpretation of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I have been on that bandwagon for a lot of years, and, oh, no, we can disagree on this, or we, can, we don't have to believe that it's literal. And when I sit down with them in the New Testament, I say, what about this doctrine, or this doctrine? It just doesn't seem to move them. So I agree with you. We are three minutes away from the end. So Marty says, why don't we use real wine in communion since Jesus did? Um, Marty, some churches still do. Um, I think we have grown... Um, super sensitive to uh, to those who have a tendency toward alcoholism. Um, I'm, I'm just not sure that it's healthy to expose uh, people who have alcohol predilections um, to to real wine in the observance of the Lord's Supper. And because it's symbolic, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Um, yes, it was real wine that they would take at the Passover celebration. Um, but do you really think if your heart is right, Jesus cares whether or not you use uh, wine or juice or anything else for that matter? So um, um, I, I don't think the use of real wine is necessary at all. I think the only thing that's necessary as we come to communion uh, is um, the right heart. And I think Paul makes that clear as he really scolds the church in Corinth.
And by the way, we're in 1 Corinthians. I just finished 1 Corinthians chapter 2 um, yesterday. And we're going into chapter 3, which, which, which is really Paul scolding the church at Corinth. They're believers. They're carnal Christians. But, but, but Paul says basically the whole time, you know better. You were taught better. And then he corrects them. And it's so practical. But it's hard. It's hard. So, um, especially you, Clara, if you're still listening, uh, if you get some time, go to calvaryessay.com and listen to the study I did yesterday because it explains the reasons why um, your brother isn't getting it. Okay, do we have time for one more? Uh, here's one I can do. we got one minute. Jason says, can I have your thoughts on the Message Bible? Uh, Jason, my thoughts, and I'll keep this for tomorrow as well, uh, it's not really Bible. Um, so my thoughts, uh, I, do, I don't have high thoughts. Uh, I like Eugene Peterson, but but I, I don't. It's not the Bible at all. It's just sort of somebody's interpretation of the Bible, uh, and I think it's it's anti-intellectual uh, in in its bias. But the, the the biggest problem with the message is that it really isn't a faithful translation uh, of the manuscripts. I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow because I think Peterson has got a lot of good stuff, just not that Bible. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. We have two more days before our Thanksgiving break. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Spend some time remembering what you have to be thankful about. Remember, Paul, I'll teach you tonight, ladies, at 7 o'clock. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.